Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the morning of Tuesday, January 14, 1963, a bitter chill ripped through the town of Battle Creek, Michigan. Temperatures had fallen 10 to 17 degrees below zero. The 25-mile-per-hour winds and thick snowfall were intense, even for Michigan. For a few hours on that winter morning, the frigid conditions seemed like the only thing on anyone's minds. But something strange would soon get the whole town talking. The small house at 100 Juno Street was home to Daisy Zick, her husband Floyd, and Daisy's young son, Jim. At 9.30 a.m. that morning, a cleaning woman who worked nearby noticed that the family's curtains were pulled closed. Every morning, like clockwork, Daisy Zick would leave them open all morning until 11 a.m. when she shut them and left for work. Seeing the blinds down an hour and a half early was mildly unsettling. A few minutes later, a neighbor named Mrs. DeFrance noticed a man she had never seen before in the Zick family's outdoor breezeway. Daisy was known to host various suitors, but never this early in the morning. Unfortunately, none of these occurrences were enough to prompt anyone to call the police. If someone had, they could have saved Daisy Zick's life. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the murder of Daisy Zick. Last week, we covered Daisy's difficult life and the moments that led up to her tragic demise. This week, we'll discuss the grueling investigation that unfurled in the wake of Daisy's murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. In 1919, Daisy Zick was born into a life of rural isolation. By age 14, she was married to 22-year-old Neville Bill King. The two were married for three painful years. Bill abused her physically and verbally, but when Daisy became pregnant, she began to reach her breaking point. Their son Jim was born in 1936, and Daisy divorced Bill not long after. Finally separated from her abuser, Daisy was able to look towards the future with optimism. Daisy moved to the town of Battle Creek, and in 1941, she met her husband, Floyd Zick. 
The two fell in love, and their honeymoon phase lasted well into the 1950s. But eventually, Floyd's drinking got out of hand and things began to sour. By 1960, both were having affairs, and life in their home was bleak. But they stuck together for the sake of Daisy's son. On January 14, 1963, whatever sense of normalcy the Zick family clung to was shattered forever. When Daisy Zick was found dead in her own home with 27 knife wounds in her chest. Battle Creek was a small, tight-knit community, and Daisy was at the center of it all. She was outgoing, charming, and friends with just about everyone in town. However, as quaint as the townspeople of Battle Creek were, they were known to gossip. And Daisy Zick's affairs were a frequent topic. So, when word of her murder broke, speculation spread like wildfire. My God, did you hear? That sick girl, I know, just awful. I don't mean to be rude or nothing, but I can't say I'm shocked. We're all thinking it. Trixie and I were at the town car when Lindsay came in looking for Daisy. She called her out in front of the entire bar about how she'd been sleeping around with her husband. She was so mad she could have killed Daisy right then and there. <gasps> you don't think... Lord, no. Lindsay wouldn't hurt a fly. But Daisy was a homewrecker. Who knows how many angry wives are out there? It seemed as though everyone in Battle Creek had a theory on Daisy's gruesome demise. In 1963, murders of this kind were rare in Battle Creek, and when they did happen, they were cut-and-dry cases. Everyone likely expected this one to be solved in a matter of days, but that early optimism soon proved naive. Battle Creek trooper Ralph Carhew was at lunch when his waitress handed him the phone. It was the station. This is Officer Carhew. Hey, Ralph, listen. We got a murder at 100 Juno. It's a bad one. Ah, oh, geez. Uh, any details? 44-year-old female, Daisy Zick. She drove that dumpy white Pontiac Bonneville. Worked at the Kellogg's factory. Wait a minute. You say a white Pontiac? A little dinged up on the side? That's what the report says. Listen, Ralph, you'll be able to go over the finer details once you get to the crime scene, but we need men down there pronto. Right, sorry. It's just... Never mind, I'll be there. Earlier that morning, while on patrol, Officer Carhew saw Daisy's Pontiac on the side of the road. He pulled over to inspect the vehicle, but saw nothing out of the ordinary. Vehicles stalled out frequently during Michigan's frigid winters. He had assumed the driver had simply walked to the mechanics nearby. Officer Carhew had no way of knowing that he had found what would become one of the most important pieces of evidence in Daisy Zick's case. At the Zick home, the investigation had already begun. Police cars began pulling up in droves, and every inch of the house was combed for evidence. Daisy kept the house in immaculate condition. This ended up being a massive help to the investigators. Anything that was even slightly out of place stood out like a sore thumb. And the most important evidence collected was just that, slight. A white button that lay on the floor several yellow fibers of cotton, a splotch of blood on a kitchen knife, only visible up close. It wasn't much, but after a painstaking day of inspection, the team was able to put together a rough outline of what happened in the moments leading up to Daisy Zick's death. There were smears of makeup on Daisy's blouse, 
so the altercation likely occurred while she was getting ready to meet her friend Audrey for coffee. There was no sign of a forced entry at the front door. It was likely that Daisy either welcomed or was tricked into letting her murderer inside. Then attention turned to the kitchen rug. It was a bunched up mess. It seemed as though this is where things started to get physical. From there, Daisy and her murderer moved into the master bedroom. An imprint of Daisy's body suggested that she fell onto the bed forcibly. Broken fingernails scattered on the bed indicated a struggle. The murderer apparently then pulled Daisy's robe from her closet and used its sash to bind her hands behind her back. With Daisy tied up, the murderer made his final attack, or so he thought. Daisy was a fighter, and despite receiving multiple stab wounds, she was able to break free from her constraints and make a mad dash for the guest room. Here, she climbed behind the stereo system for cover, but the killer yanked the stereo out of the way and finished the job. Her murderer then grabbed $45 from her wallet, found her car keys, and fled the scene in Daisy's Pontiac. The boys from Battle Creek PD called the Michigan State Police Crime Lab right away, and they had a grueling task ahead of them. As the lab workers attempted to dust for prints, they realized that whatever oil or polish Daisy had used on her home surfaces obscured fingerprints. Despite the setback, the team was able to recover 12 sets. Then the team's attention was turned to Daisy's car, which had been spotted earlier that morning by Officer Carhew. One of the first things they found were yellow cotton fibers, just like in Daisy's home. The team continued their careful check of the car until 3 a.m. the next morning. Despite the hard work, they were unable to find anything else of substance. Even though the investigation was struggling, the Battle Creek residents were in a frenzy trying to track down information about Daisy's murder. By the morning of January 15th, local media had picked up the story. The publicity from Daisy's murder opened up a new pipeline to help the investigation move forward. Anonymous tips started flooding the local police department. Many were false leads. However, it made the police realize it was time to start focusing on testimonies over the scarce physical evidence. One of the first townspeople of Battle Creek to be interviewed was William Newman Daly, a delivery man for the post office. So, Mr. Daly, you said you drove by the area where Daisy's car was pulled over on the morning of January 15th. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Around uh, 10.05, I drove by the chuck wagon on Michigan Avenue. Uh, come to think of it, there was something awful odd that happened right as I passed Daisy's vehicle. Something odd? I saw a peculiar-looking man. Uh, I know just about everybody in Battle Creek. And, sir, this wasn't anyone I had seen before. He was 150, maybe 175 pounds, five foot eight or so, and he had this god-awful grin on his face. This was the first substantial evidence that the police had found, and it quickly shaped the future of the case. Coming up, we'll look at the convoluted investigation that stretched on for years after Daisy's murder. 
You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on miracle healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On January 14, 1963, 44-year-old Daisy Zick was brutally murdered in her own home. When local police arrived at the scene, signs of a struggle were immediately clear. However, as their search for evidence grew more granular, they found nothing more than a few cotton fibers and fingerprints. A search of Daisy's car yielded similarly disappointing results. However, once the cops began interviewing those close to Daisy and combing through anonymous tips, things began to feel slightly less hopeless. One of the most intriguing testimonies the police received was from a local delivery man, William Newman Daly. Daly claimed that earlier that morning, he passed by Daisy Zick's vehicle pulled over on Michigan Avenue. Nearby, he saw a man walking towards the car with a strange grin. But as the police began to gather more testimonies, Daly's story began to crumble. Firstly, Daly claimed that after seeing the man he passed by Daisy's home around 11 a.m., he said that the garage door was closed. However, every other testimony that the police received noted that the garage door was wide open. And a number of people drove the exact same route as Daly at the same time on January 14th, but none of them mentioned this mysterious man. This caused the police to shift their suspicions onto William Daly himself. But with the investigation still in its infancy, the police had no choice but to explore the rest of their leads. Their efforts in the immediate wake of Daisy's death were sprawling and thorough. This was all thanks to the case's head detective, Charlie Kahn. Kahn was a good investigator, and he knew that just because a detail was small didn't mean it wasn't important. He teamed up with Undersheriff Wayne R. Fitch of the Calhoun County Sheriff's Department and started to dig into the case. Fitch was the department's chief investigator. He was just as detail-oriented as Kahn, and even more stern. The two made it their business to leave no stone unturned. 
As the team began plotting the rest of the investigation, they decided to start with the people closest to Daisy, her family and her workplace. Not long after they discovered Daisy's body, Detective Kahn paid a visit to the Kellogg's factory to retrieve Daisy's belongings from her locker and search for any potential leads. The contents of her locker were nothing too surprising. Makeup, talcum powder, a shoehorn. But as Kahn rifled through these mundane items, he uncovered something that caught his eye. Two gifts addressed to Raymond Honey. As he continued his search, he found a trove of love notes, all either to or from Raymond. Raymond Mercer and Daisy had been romantically intertwined for two years by the time of her death. Even though their relationship had been without troubles, Detective Kahn was quick to bring Mercer in for questioning. Mercer was able to provide an airtight alibi and even subjected himself to a polygraph test. He was soon dismissed as a suspect in the murder, but Daisy's close friend Audrey had yet to be questioned. The case's prosecutor, Noble Moore, had Audrey come to the station. He assumed that it would be a brief and mild-mannered discussion, but it didn't exactly go as planned. Miss Hemminger, you can't quite seem to keep your story straight. Now, was Daisy involved with the men in the factory or not? I told you, the only one I know about is Ray. I mean, Daisy likes to sleep around, but I don't know. She only told me so much. What about you, Miss Hemminger? Are you faithful to your husband? How dare you? Word on the street is you and Daisy like to compete with each other. Rack up the body count, as one of your friends put it. What are you implying? The men here. I know all about it. You two see who can sleep with the most co-workers treating people like they're just part of some sick game. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. (gasps) Moore became so agitated during Audrey's interrogation that he pushed the woman to tears. She burst out from the police station and ran home on foot. From that point on, she refused to help in the investigation. The detectives pressed on. Next up, the team turned to Daisy's fellow factory line workers. Most had little or no information to offer regarding the case, and all consented to polygraph tests. The police turned to any employees at the massive plant who could have possibly fit the description of the stranger seen by Mrs. DeFrance, a tall man in a blue coat who was outside Daisy Zick's breezeway earlier that morning. They ended up interrogating employees who had never even met Daisy before. This deep dive into Kellogg's employees lasted three agonizing months, and no substantial information surfaced. Still, the men working the case were interested in digging deeper into Daisy's romantic past for a potential suspect. They scoured Daisy's entire dating history and tracked down as many men as they could find, but nothing brought them any closer to a lead. The investigation began to get more desperate. They skimmed through local mental facilities and prisons to see if there had been any breakouts during the time of Daisy's murder. The team caught word of a woman checked into Kalamazoo Psychiatric Hospital who had claimed to have been Daisy's murderer. They felt as though they had hit the jackpot, But they were met with a woman who was too mentally unfit to leave her hospital room, let alone kill. 
Feeling as though the investigation had hit rock bottom, Prosecutor Moore elected to hold a press conference in hopes of drumming up final shreds of information from the townspeople of Battle Creek. A person with any information has no way of knowing how crucial their cooperation could be. Even the smallest piece of information could complete an important piece of this jigsaw puzzle we are trying to put together. Moore and the others working the case felt pushed against the wall, and while they hadn't given up just yet, they were bracing themselves for the long haul. However, soon after the press conference, on March 23, 1963, a man called the state police with the first real advancement the case had seen in over two months. Coming up, we'll discuss how one tip changed the course of the Daisy Zick investigation completely. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1963, the police launched an extensive investigation in hopes of pinning down Daisy Zick's murderer. The task proved to be more daunting than anyone could have anticipated. The team spent three agonizing months combing through every piece of evidence they had and following every lead they could scrounge up. But still, they were no closer to pinning down Daisy's killer than when the investigation first began. In an act of desperation, the case's prosecutor, Noble Moore, held a press conference. His hope was that by addressing the people of Battle Creek directly, he could finally drum up a lead, but he knew it was a long shot. Despite the pessimism that lingered in the air, the press conference yielded almost immediate results. Afterwards, the local newspaper in Battle Creek published a story regarding the Zick murder. And on March 23, 1963, this article prompted 49-year-old Garrett Vandermeer to contact the Michigan State Police. You said you had information regarding the Zick case? Yes, sir. I believe I saw that Pontiac on the day she was murdered. You mean pulled over on the side of the road? Yeah, we've had plenty of people who said they saw it there, but... No, no. Driving. Around 11 a.m. or so. Excuse me? I was on Michigan Avenue, and that same Pontiac was in front of me, driving and swerving and stopping like the driver was in some sort of state. Then the car just pulled over onto the shoulder and stayed there. But Daisy wasn't behind the wheel. No, it wasn't Daisy. You didn't happen to get a good look at who was driving, did you? It was a man. He stared at me, and I stared right back at him. He had this dark jacket on. Dark blue, I'd say. A good-sized fellow. Good-looking. He had a bit of color in his face. It was white, just a hint of red. Uh, Mr. Vandermeer, I cannot stress to you how crucial this information will be to our investigation. Well, I'm happy to help. The most peculiar thing about him was his hair. He had it combed straight back in the parts. It puffed up in the front and had a little wave to it. Would you be able to come to the station, Mr. Vandermeer? Sure, I suppose so. When do you need me? As soon as humanly possible. The importance of this one tip cannot be overstated. It was the only first-hand account of what Daisy's murderer actually looked like. Not to mention, all of Vandermeer's information lined up with the other testimonies that the police had received. 
Daisy's car, the dark jacket, the fact that the murderer would have been on the road around 11 a.m. This was the first true break that the case had received, and Detective Kahn was quick to bring Vandermeer into the station. Vandermeer helped provide numerous physical details about the driver, even going so far as to specify what his hands looked like. After rigorous questioning, he helped police sketch artists create a composite image of the alleged assailant. Having a witness to Daisy's murderer could have been a massive asset, but the team was miles away from even putting a name to a face, let alone nailing down a court date. And unfortunately, this testimony was just one faint glimmer of hope in a decades-long case marred by disappointment. The first setback occurred on May 7, 1963, when one of the case's key investigators, Detective Wayne Fitch, died suddenly of a heart attack while mowing his lawn. Fitch was a crucial player, and his loss affected the case greatly. By 1964, the tips had stopped coming in. It wasn't long before all of their leads went completely cold. Just as things were starting to fire back up, it had stopped dead in its tracks. For three long years, the case faded into obscurity. It seemed like Daisy Zick's death would never be solved. But in 1967, a new recruit of the Michigan State Police breathed life back into the case. Leroy Steinbacher was an aspiring up-and-coming detective, and after receiving an anonymous tip about Daisy Zick, he single-handedly reinvigorated the case. This is Detective Steinbacher. Yeah, I got a tip for you. Uh, about the Zick girl. The who? Oh, that case from four years ago. Sure. May I ask who's calling? Do you want to know what I have to say or not? Uh, of course. Go on. Look, if you go back into the case, you'll probably see someone by the name William Daly mentioned a few times. Right, right. Uh, the mailman, was it? Well, about a week ago, I was at a bar with him. He was real messed up. Liquor. Maybe pills. But he walks up to this woman and tries to get her to have a dance with him. She says no, and he got real mad real quick. Then he said something that made my head turn. I heard him say that he was about to do to her what had been done to Daisy Zick. And so you're saying... What I'm saying is, if you knew what I know about William Daly, well, it wouldn't be much of a shock to find out that he was the one who killed Daisy Zick. Steinbacher immediately dredged up as much information on 42-year-old William Daly as he could find. The first thing to catch his eye was the testimony that he gave back in 1963, only days after Daisy's murder. Daly's testimony was inconsistent with every other testimony they had on file. This seemed immediately suspicious to Steinbacher. The more Steinbacher looked into Daly and his testimony, the more suspicious he became. Daly was called into the Battle Creek Police Station for questioning. Daly was uneasy throughout their conversation and very easily agitated. Daly changed his original story about seeing a strange man on Michigan Avenue. Now, he said it was actually a woman. Daly also stated that he had plans to leave Battle Creek. He was preparing to move to Panama City, and soon. 
Steinbacher moved on to questioning Daly about an arrest that he had in 1966. Daly had parked a few blocks away from his ex-wife's home, got out, kicked in her door, and assaulted his ex-wife's new boyfriend. However, previous testimonies said that Daly had actually intended to attack his daughter-in-law. Although Daly was beginning to look like a prime suspect, a number of new leads suddenly appeared that distracted Steinbacher from pursuing him further. A Kalamazoo County jail inmate named George Borden claimed to know a man who took credit for Daisy's murder in 1966. The police arranged to meet with this Borden and hear his story. He claimed that a man named Norman Baker had admitted to murdering Zick after a night of drinking. The police looked into it, but Baker didn't seem like a realistic suspect. Several other jailhouse confessions surfaced over the next couple of years, and each one turned out to be duds. In 1967, Steinbacher was able to turn his eyes back on William Daly, but by this point, Daly was long gone. Unable to get in touch with Daly, Steinbacher reached out to the next closest thing, 24-year-old Susan Denny, Daly's daughter-in-law. At the time of Daisy's murder, Denny was living with her husband and William Daly. She was able to vividly recall her father-in-law's bizarre behavior on the day of the murder. He came home in an awful mood, reeking like he'd been drinking. When I asked what the matter was, he said something about the Zick girl. When you say something, do you mean- No, nothing like a confession. But he said that she had it coming, and he was even madder about the police. In what way? Oh, he said he had a good lead for them, and they just brushed him off, ignored him. And then they forced him to sit down for one lie detector test after another, no matter how much he protested. A lie detector? Listen, I appreciate you coming down to speak to me, and I know how memory is, four years ago especially. But I have the police reports right here. No one ever gave your dad a polygraph. Don't patronize me, detective. I remember the day just fine. And I remember every word he said. I can hear it every time I smell stale vodka on someone's breath. Hey, listen, I didn't mean to offend. But if your dad said what you said he said, then it goes against everything I have in these files. Susan Denny's story about Daly's lies made him look even more suspicious, and Denny still had more to tell. Apparently, William Daly had been frequently violent, even going so far as to choke her. After one of these attacks, he hinted that he knew who had killed Daisy Zick. It was almost as if he was saying, if you aren't careful, I'll make sure the same thing happens to you. Steinbacher knew he needed to speak to Daly, but since he was missing, Denny suggested that the team reach out to an old co-worker of his, Beverly Eden. Eden supported Denny's claim that William Daly had been acting very strange on the morning of January 14, 1963. She also mentioned that he had a jacket very similar to the one described in Garrett Vandermeer's testimony. The pieces seemed like they were finally falling into place after four long years. Steinbacher was eager to get back into a room with Daly, but this proved to be more difficult than he had anticipated. Daly seemed impossible to track down. 
He had been bouncing around the South ever since 1967. Steinbacher continued searching for Daly for the next five years to no avail. But by 1973, Detective Steinbacher retired. And with that, Daisy Zick's case shriveled away. There were no more leads to follow as Steinbacher packed up his desk and walked out of his office, any hope of finding Daisy Zick's murderer left along with him. We may never know for sure who murdered Daisy Zick, but looking over all the confirmed evidence, it seems like William Daly was responsible. Between his contradicting testimonies and violent past, he's the only viable suspect. The evidence that implicates William Daly as the murderer is beyond compelling, so I have to agree. His job as a postman made the perfect alibi for his presence in Daisy's neighborhood that morning, and if someone were to have seen him at the door that morning, it wouldn't have seemed out of place at all. Unfortunately, Daly passed away in April of 2011 from cancer. So if he did kill Daisy Zick all those years ago, he took the truth of his actions to the grave. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Daisy Zick, amongst the many sources we used, we found Murder in Battle Creek by Blaine L. Pardo extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by River Donahay and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Ellie Schiff, Julian Smith, Laura Faye Smith, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 